Well, John 8, we're going to read verses 12 through 30 here. And uh, if you're newer, maybe you haven't been around Harvest a long time, our preferred way of preaching is to pick a book of the Bible and just to go through it verse by verse and allow the Bible to guide the conversation. And uh, we don't always do it that way, but for the majority of the year we do. And uh, we're working through John. We've been whittling away at it. And uh, we're really going to pick up some steam over the next few weeks. Uh, part of that's because we have some, some big chunks of Scripture to cover today. We have about 20 verses. Uh, but then really after you get through chapter 9 or so, the, the chapters begin to shorten. So like chapter 8 is 59 verses. That's a long chapter. Uh, but as you get through this, they get a little bit shorter and you can uh, chew through a bit more. But let's read these verses together and try to understand what this text is saying. John 8 verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now this is, a, this is kind of the centerpiece of this text, and we'll dive into that verse. Verses 13 through 29, which is the majority of what we're going to read, it are pieces of conversations that Jesus has already had. So today, we're not going to actually cover those word by word because we really have already covered these thoughts word by word in chapters 3 and chapters 5 and chapter 7. And Jesus tells them as much. When you look at verse 25, he says it this way. Uh, they say unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I have said unto you from the beginning. So what's he saying? He's saying, Look, I've been telling you the same thing all along. Like, I've already told you this, and I'm, I'm continuing to tell you this. Same song, second verse. If you're a parent, you know what this is like to have to, you know, beat it into your kids over and over and over and over again. Be nice to your sister. Be nice to your sister. Be nice to your sister. Just constantly saying that. And this is kind of where Jesus is at. So all these things... Uh, really, we've already covered when he's going to talk about the testimony of one and how my testimony is true and the Father testifies of me and, and all that we're going to read. We're going to read it, but if, if you want the particulars on these thoughts, and you can go back to those previous sermons because we've already covered it, but we're going to get the, the highlight here. So look in verse 13. The Pharisees said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. So they just called him a liar, which is never a good day when you call Jesus a liar. Uh, verse 14, Jesus said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. So you can see the combativeness already. You're a liar. No, I'm not. Verse 15, or 14. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell me whence I come and whither I go. You don't know me. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the tes testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself. And the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. So Jesus says, look, you're, you're judging according to externals. I don't judge that way. Uh, but if I do judge, you better believe it's going to be true because I'm in sync with the Father. There's no daylight in between us. Once again, thoughts we've already covered in previous sermons. Uh, verse number 19, they don't get it. And they say, where's thy father? Like, where's your dad? They're not thinking about God. Jesus answered, ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, you should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Now, I'll, I'll highlight that verse because we're going to get to it in a minute. Where, where he's at is important. It says the treasury that's also known as the courtyard of the Gentiles, or the courtyard of the women, excuse me, where, where Jewish men and women could mingle. You had a, a Gentile courtyard where Jews and Gentiles could be. Then it got more exclusive, Jews only. Then it got even more exclusive than that, Jewish men only. And then in the temple were the Jewish priests only. So it got increasingly exclusive. This area where the men and women, the Jewish people could be, was oftentimes referred to as, a, as the treasury. They would have 13 shofars. The 
these, uh, these horns that were turned upside down that you could drop money in, almost like an offering plate there. But it was the courtyard of the women where the men and women could mingle. And that'll be important in a moment. So just lodge that in the back of your brain. Verse 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. So that's a strong statement there. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he said, whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and judge of you, but he that sent me is true. I speak to the world those things which I've heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. That's a reference and an allusion to his crucifixion. John 12 makes it abundantly clear that when he speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up, he testifies of his death. So he's, he's saying, when I'm crucified, then you're going to know that I'm him. Then that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Uh, by way of introduction, we moved to Pittsburgh. My family did four and a half years ago. On January 1st of 2015, we pulled out of Chico, California in our shorts and t-shirts. And we arrived on January the 4th, three days later. That was a, that was a, that was a tough trip. We just, we just plowed through it, got here three days later. And it was January the 4th in western Pennsylvania. And the temperature and the weather was about what you would expect on January the 4th in western Pennsylvania. And we were, we were well aware that it would be colder here. We were well aware that there would be snow here. And we never saw snow in Chico. But we were not aware of how dreary it is in the Pittsburgh area. And honestly, it caught us off guard and it shocked us and kind of depressed us as to how gray it can be here. And if you're from the area, you may not even realize that there's other places where like there's sunshine like almost every day or at least every other day, but those places exist. And, and we went through these seasons, it felt like weeks and months where it was just gray and rainy and 40 degrees and and all we wanted to do was like read lamentations and pray for the rapture and like help us like it just it got sad it got depressing and we we've learned to kind of combat it a little bit but it it obviously still happens you know when it's not summertime And, and it amazes me that people you know last week it was hot here it's so hot I'm like I've Shut up. It's not hot. It's good. It's sunny. Like we were begging for this months ago. We want this. This is good stuff here. So that it's seasonal defective, affective disorder is like a legit thing. I haven't been diagnosed with it, but I possibly could. When winter comes, like it can just get gloomy and gray because of the lack of sunshine. And we know that our bodies need the light, that that's good for us, that that's healthy for us. And in the same way that our bodies need the light, Our soul needs the light, and Jesus is going to talk about how he is the light of the world, and he is the light that men need, not just for your body, but for your soul internally, when he announces that I am the light of the world, that if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. What does that mean? 
What does it mean when Jesus says that he is the light? So let me back up and give you some context, and then we're going we're gonna to chew away at this. This is, if you remember during the Feast of Tabernacles, all of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8 is during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a, it's a week period in Jesus' ministry. And most explicitly, there's about a three-day period where Jesus does these five iterations of teaching. We see in this text that we just read, the fourth and the fifth iteration. But if you remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is a week-long festival that the Jews would use to commemorate how God led them through the wilderness and His power and His glory was on display and how God took care of them and God them to the promised land from Egypt. And they would do this in different ways. So they would live in booths or tabernacles or tents because their ancestors had wandered around in these makeshift houses that were tents. And they they went around as as they got to the promised land. And so they would take a week and they would camp more or less and live in these tents. They would also have this, this ceremony where they would go draw water with this golden vial from the pool of Siloam and they, they would pour this out and it was this magnificent ceremony. And we talked about that in chapter seven where Jesus in that moment stands up and he screams, he yells aloud at them that if you're thirsty, come to me, drink of me. If you believe, I'll make you a fountain. They were trying to remember the rock that was smitten that provided water for them and, and commemorating this. And Jesus says, look, I'll make you a fountain. And he leverages the symbolism. And in the same way, Jesus is doing that here because there was another part of the Feast of Tabernacles that took place, that they would try to remember how God led them through the wilderness. And if you remember Exodus and Numbers, that God led them by day with a cloud and by night with a pillar of fire, which was was practical when you're wandering in the desert during the day, it's hot and bright. So a cloud and shade is very practical. At night, the temperature plummets and it's cold and it's dark. So a pillar of fire is very practical. But it was more than just something practical or pragmatic that they needed. We're told that that pillar of fire was the glory of God. It was the Shekinah. It was, it was the, the very manifestation of the presence of God in the midst of his people. And they had this uh, a ceremony that they would do to commemorate that. And they would, during the Feast of Tabernacles, bring out massive candelabras. And when I say massive, I'm talking like 60, 70 feet massive. Like two, if you went outside and looked at the top of our steeple, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about huge candelabras. They'd bring two, three, four of these, depending on on the year. They would bring these out into the treasury or the courtyard of the women where the Jewish men and women could be. And as sun went down, they would light these candelabras. And and, And the Mishnah records that you could... You could sift wheat anywhere in Jerusalem because of the light from Temple Mount from these massive candelabras. And it would light up the whole city. It would seem like it lit up the world. And they would have this, this all-night festival, really, where the, the Levites would get on the 12 stairs that, uh, that lead up into the other courtyard. And they would play their instruments, that the men would dance, and they would have torches, and they would sing, and they would praise the God. And they would have this big shindig, more or less, all night long, just praising God and worshiping God for who he was and his glory that was manifested in that pillar of fire. And it's with this backdrop where Jesus is standing literally under these massive candelabras inside of this courtyard. And Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Follow me and you won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. So what, okay, you can see why Jesus would say this. You would see how he would leverage this. What does he mean by this? 
Certainly, he's at least saying that just as you're remembering the glory, the Shekinah, the presence of God, you got it right here, the glory of God manifested, the presence of God manifested in human form. But I think he's saying more than that. And I think all you have to do is ask yourself, what is light? What does light do? And you'll get the answer to that question. So I would say first that light brings life. And that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. And he says as much in verse 12. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. That with my light brings life. This is exactly how John introduced Jesus to us in verse 4 of this gospel. The, very, for, the fourth verse, John says that in him was life and that life was the light of men. That he uses these synonymously. And if you think about it, life really is the source of all biological life. That without light, there's no life. We, if you took 8th or ninth grade biology, then you understand this. Photosynthesis, right? The plants take in the sunlight, and the sunlight is part of their nutrition and part of their food. And by that, they grow, and then the herbivores eat that, and then the carnivores, including us, eat the plants and eat the animals. If, if you're a vegetarian, that's fine. But that light is needed to produce life across the planet. We've probably all seen some doomsday movie where the sun is blotted out and, and everything turns icy and cold and there's no food and everybody dies and it's sad, right? Because without the light, there's no life. You need light for life. And Jesus is saying more or less that I am the source of life, that really what you need, the life that you need, the eternal life that I want to give to you is available in me, that there's a a photosynthesis of the soul, in essence, that I'm making available to you that you can take in and imbibe. And if you get away from that light, just like a house plant in a room with no windows, you'll wither away to dust. And Jesus is saying, that light that you need, that life that you need is in me. I possess this. I will give this to you. And I think that this is important for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons is that it dispels a myth about Christianity. Because there are lots of people who are not Christian who think this about Christianity. There's even some Christians who think this about Christianity, which, is, which should not be. But a common myth is that, you know what, if I go into the light, if I have the light of, of Jesus in my life, then that's going to be bad. That's going to take away life from me. That's going to zap me. That's going to mean that I can't do what I want to with my money. You mean I've got to like, Tithe? Tithe? What was that word? I gotta give a percent. I gotta. I gotta be radically generous. I can't do what I want to with my money. I can't do what I want to with my sexuality. You mean that that I have to be married, one person, monogamous, whole life? That I I can't just do whatever I want. You mean I can't do what I want to with my words? I gotta be honest. You mean I can't do what I want to with my time? I'm supposed to serve others and love my neighbor and put people first. That 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 sounds like a drag. That don't, I don't want to sign up for that. What people are saying is, if I get the light of Jesus, I'll wither away and die. But that's not true. It's not true because the light of Jesus brings life. And when you come into his light and you see who he is and you see what he asks of you and you start to obey him, you begin to realize that you weren't really living before, that you are now experiencing life as it's supposed to be lived. And he wants to transform you with that. He wants to give life to you through that. And the only way you'll experience photosynthesis for your soul that you need is to step into the light and to accept Jesus. It's the only way that it comes. And it is a bit paradoxical where it does seem like 
you know, I'm going to be imprisoned, but you're actually set free. It seems like I'm going to, I'm going to commit suicide with my own personal agenda, but you actually get freedom from that. You actually get life from that. John Donne said it this way. He said, Jesus imprisoned me for without this, I shall never be free. John Donne understood what it meant to step into the light, to follow a savior, to to have him be Lord of your life, but at the same time experience the life-giving nature of that and how good and how sweet it is. But it brings life, yes. I would also say that light brings health. What happens to us physically when winter comes? Could get depressed, could get sick. That's what, flu season, right? Sick season. Why do we get sick during the winter? Why is it cold, Sue? Because there's a lack of light. We are further away from the light source. We also have a shorter duration of light. You know during the winter, it's like, wake up, have breakfast, here comes the sun, have lunch, there goes the sun, right? You get like four hours of sunlight. It's less intense and the duration is less and therefore you're more prone to not be healthy but to be sick. You're more prone to have to visit the doctor and to have the flu and to have strep throat. As a pastor, uh, I experience this every year. There's a rhythm. Summer, marry people. Winter, I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's the way it is. Winter, bury people. That's the way it goes. Summer, people are getting married. Winter, people are getting sick and, and, it, and it can be depressing. The light brings health to us as, as spring turns to summer and we begin to get more of that. We, we stay a bit healthier normally. And this is what the Bible tells us more or less in 1 John 1. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What's that saying? You possess the light of Jesus and that light is in your life and in your soul, then you're going to be close and clean with Jesus because of that. And that's going to produce a spiritual and emotional health for you that nothing else in the world can. You're you're going to see a manifestation of fellowship with God's people for sure, but also, but also with the Lord himself. That I get that glory. I get the presence of God. I get to talk with him and commune with him. I don't just say my prayers. I pray. Right? There's a difference. One is humdrum and yawn. The other is I'm communing with God and this is good and this is sweet and this is healthy and this is awesome. There is a, a, a cleanliness that comes from that. Why do we wash our hands? Because we want to propagate health, right? We want to kill those germs. We want to get rid of that. If, if you've ever uh, uh, put your hand or, or your skin even under maybe some sort of ultraviolet light or something and you've seen the sunburn or you've seen maybe the germs that are there that you didn't realize, you understand that light exposes what was not previously available to be seen in the darkness. Anyone ever swept your kitchen floor in the dark? If you have, you were sleepwalking, okay? The, the only reason you would do that is you're sleepwalking. You, do, you need to turn the lights white to see the dirt to clean it up, right? And when you, when you have the light of Jesus in your life, there is this light that's being put forth inside of you that is revealing things that should not be there. Why? So that they can come to light so that they can be clean and that you can be close and clean with God. And I, I do have to warn you that this is... Um, this is both, it's an experience that will make you more and more, um, sad's not the right word, but it, it will, it'll attack you. And, and the more and more you go through this, it'll produce this, uh, not down on yourself, but this realization of how, how truly depraved you are. But on the other hand, it will produce this 
joy and gratitude and health that's inside of you. I'll, I'll confess my sins and just tell you personally how this has, has worked out in my own life. I got saved when I was in middle school, big church background, but uh, really didn't know the Lord and was pretending for a, a while and came to faith. And quickly thereafter, I realized that I had a power issue, a control issue that needed to start to be whittled away at by the light of Jesus. And I wouldn't have thought to put it in those terms. I would have thought to put it more in, you know, I struggled with uh, exerting my power over people in a physical way or, or dominating or bullying. I grew up with four brothers. I'm in the middle of, of four brothers, five of us. I'm right in the middle. And that was just kind of like part and parcel for our family. Like you just, you fought, you wrestled, you, you know, you punched each other. It was just kind of the way it was. Not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's just the way that, that we grew up. And that had begun to rub off on my friendships, my classmates, my schoolmates. And I would, you know, literally twist people's arms behind their back or whatever to get my way. And I began to realize that's not okay. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I'm not supposed to strike people. I'm not supposed to, to do, like, that's not an okay thing. I need to repent of this and confess it. But then, over the course of time, that sin began to pop itself up in, in far more subtle ways. That I began to, to realize that I was dominating the conversation. I was extremely argumentative. I could never be wrong. And all it was was a different manifestation of the same power and control problem. And I realized, you know what? I'm supposed to follow after things which make for peace. I'm, I'm not supposed to, to argue and, and to murmur and complain. And all this, that's not supposed to be part of who I am as a Christian. So I bring that to the light, right? And get cleaned up. And think, I'm good to go. It's, it's all good. It's all taken care of. And then wouldn't you know it, you get married and all of a sudden it starts to show itself it's, it's, itself again. That it's difficult to apologize it's difficult to be vulnerable with your spouse or with your fellow Christians sometimes. And you realize, at least I begin to realize, there's a lack of vulnerability inside of me. And confessing our sins one to another and praying one for another that we may be healed is non-existent. And all of a sudden, that same, I want to be in control and I want to, I want to feel like I have power. And it begins to creep itself up. And over and over and over again, that painful experience of that being brought to the light so it could be cleaned up is there. But at the same time, in conjunction with this, and it's tough for me to wrap my mind around it, but I know it's real. At the same time, that is healthy and beautiful and life-giving and awesome. Because I begin to realize, you know what? My heart is far more devious than I thought it was originally. Like the inner me is really creative of, of working out sin in different ways. And you know what? I thought that Jesus was saving bully me. But I realize he's saving bully me and argumentative me and lack of vulnerability me and on and on and on. That all of a sudden I see that he's loving me to the bottom and that his grace is still there and that his mercy is still there. And it wasn't just I died for some of those sins, but all of those sins. And now the gospel is enlarging. The grace of God is bigger. Now all of a sudden there's, there's more gratitude for my salvation. Now there's more joy that Jesus would choose me and save me and redeem me. And all of a sudden this painful process of him bringing this to the light is, is coming forth in something that is so healthy and something that is so life-giving. And I don't know how to explain that any better than that, but just to say, if you don't know Jesus, you need to step into the light and experience that is awesome. It's, it's, it is painful, and, and it 
can be something that you don't exactly desire, but man, it's healthy. When you talk about light, you get life, you get health. I would also say light brings safety. What happens when the, when the power goes out in your township? You go outside and play? If it's, you know, 10 o'clock at night, or you stay inside and batten down the hatches? You batten down the hatches and lock the doors. Why? Because crime is more prone to happen when, when it's dark and when there's no light outside. If your f- kids are afraid of the dark or, or your husband's afraid of the dark, you know, no judgment. Why are they scared? Because they don't feel as safe in the dark. So what do you do? You turn on the nightlight, don't you? Why does your kid not want, you know, the monster's going to get me, the burglar's going to get me. I had, <laughs> this is a side note, but it'll be comical. I was super scared of the dark, like in even upper elementary, but you know, you don't want to admit it, right? You don't want to tell anybody. Again, I thought a, a burglar was going to come get me because my parents watch America's Most Wanted and, and it was on while we were in the room. And don't do that to your kids. It'll scar them. And I was super scared. And one day I, I finally confessed to like my mom. I was super scared. And she told me, I think it was my mom, maybe my dad, but she told me that, um, that most burglaries don't happen at night. They happen during the day which solved my night problem, but it made me petrified during the day when I was home alone and stuff. So um, I was scared of the dark, though, I can admit. Like, I felt unsafe in the dark, right? And there's a bit of reality to that. You turn on your headlights when you drive in your car to illuminate the path so you can get to point A to point B safely, right? When you come into the light of Jesus, we saw this in chapter 5, and we'll see it again in chapter 10. There is a safety and there is a security inside of that light that is unbelievable. As you step into that and accept him, that, that he possesses you, that you, nothing can get at you or take you out of his hand, that you're secure, that he promises you, you're in my family, you're my child, I'll raise you up on the last day, that there's, there's extreme safety and security eternally and spiritually with Jesus Christ as you step into the light. So, so when Jesus makes this statement, see that massive candelabra up there that seems like it's lighting up the whole world? I'm the light of the world. I have the light of life. He's making something that's bold and profound. I'm the glory. I'm the presence of God. I'll give you life. I'll give you health. I'll give you safety. So the question that is needed to be asked is how do we get this light into our lives? That sounds great. At least it does to me. Maybe I'm biased, but that sounds fantastic. So how do I get that? How, how do I get this photosynthesis for my soul? It feels like winter in my soul. How do, how do I get warmed up? Well, it tells us. There's a couple verses. First one is verse uh, 12, the first one we read. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See that word followeth? That's a key. Follow. We've said this before, but that, that means a few things practically. It means that Jesus is the leader. Right? There's chief and Indian. There's, there's leader, follower. That means if you're a follower, you're not leader. He gets to call the shots. He gets to be in control. It is accurate to assume of Christianity that you know what? I, I won't have control over my money anymore and I'll have to be radically generous and I won't have control over my tongue anymore and I need to be honest and I won't have control over my time anymore and, and I'm going to have to serve others. That is accurate. The inaccurate part is that it's not life-giving. It is life-giving. But it is accurate that he's Lord, that he's in control, that he's Savior. 
that he's not your co-pilot and that he gets to call the shots and be the leader. It also means that you need to figure out what your next step is. How many of you, raise of hands, played follow the leader as a kid? All right? You probably even sang the Peter's Pan song while you, while you did it. We're following the leader, the leader. You ever, ever do that? Ever play follow the leader and you all line up behind the leader and the leader just stands there? Like, yo, statue game is over in that room. This is follow the leader. Move. <laughs> Ten seconds goes by, you're out. You'll be your own leader and, you, and you'll start marching somewhere else, right? You're not a follow, just standing there doing nothing. Following implies that you should be growing and stepping and walking in the light, that you should be making progress, and that there should be a next step for you. Lots of people really just, just myth it when it comes to their Christian life because they just go through the motions. Show up to church, sing, do this. I try to read my Bible, but I'm not as good as I want to be. I, I want to be better. But they have no next step. They have nothing actionable. They have nothing that they're growing in. Nothing that, that here is what I need to do next. You should be able to have that in your mind and your, and your, and your life and your heart and be able to identify it and pursue that. We have all the time with people, I'll give you a couple of just basic ones that people pursue here at our church all the time. Salvation is obviously a next step. There's lots of people that, that don't know Jesus. Uh, many of you in this room came to church uh, and were introduced to Jesus Christ through Harvest Baptist Church, and, and you came to saving faith. And praise God for that. That obviously is step one. But then there's people that will be baptized. That Many people, I've never publicly committed to God in that way and had that symbolism of, of my sins being buried and being raised to new life. Uh, Ed, I'm excited for you to, to have that experience today here after the service. And, and baptism is, is a real next step that people need to take. Membership is something. We do a monthly membership class on purpose because we've realized that's a next step people are often needing to take. That they're needing to not just come and exist in a church, but to actually say, you know what? I understand the church and what my role should be, and I'm going to commit, and I'm going to plug in, I'm going to be part of this body and have a part to play. And that's an important thing for people to understand that and to make that next step. Giving and generosity is certainly there. If you don't trust God with your money, you'll you'll never trust him with your life fully. I, I tell people often, just try it. Just try tithing for 60 days, and if it don't work, you can go back to how it was before. But try it. Prove him. See if he doesn't make it all work. See if he doesn't balance it all out. See if he doesn't bless you because you trust him with your money. There's, there's, a, there's a million things that you could do to identify as your next step. Serving is one. If you're not plugged in in something, you just sit on the sidelines. That's not supposed to be. That's a good next step. I can promise you, I've been pastoring here almost three years. I have yet to have anyone come to me, or I would say, I, don't, I dare say any of our staff, have someone come to them and say, you know what, I want to get off the sidelines and I want to do something for God and I want to have a part to play, I'm going to serve. And we looked at them and said, I ain't got nothing for you. I'm sorry. Now, if you come with your list of demands, that's a different story. You know, I want to preach for you the next four Sundays. I'm going to tell you no. But if, if you come with a heart, a servant heart of here's what, oh, I, I just want to do something. Put me in the game, coach. I promise you, we'll put you in the game faster than you can blink. Like, we'll give you 18 jobs. But that, that's real. Those are things that, that maybe in your life that you need to identify. I could go on and on and on. But the point is, following Jesus means that there's, I'm growing. I'm working on something. I've identified something that, that I want to mature spiritually in. I want to get plugged into a group. I, I want to begin to pray more, whatever it may be. So, how do I get this light into my life? Well, part of it, he says, you're going to have to follow me. 
You're going to have to understand that relationship, that he's the leader. Part of it is in verse 28. You're going to have to see him as crucified. Verse 28, it says that Jesus said to them, When ye've lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. So, let me just paraphrase this for you. You want proof that I am who I say I am? You want proof that I'm from heaven? Kill me. This is going to release a wave of light and truth into the world that will sweep you away if you don't believe in this. And we know that this prediction was absolutely true because they crucified him on a Friday thinking that we put down the insurrectionist and we don't have to worry about him anymore. And Sunday he rose from the dead and began a movement that has never stopped. So this was absolutely true that he said, this is going to show you something. But for a Christian and a, and a follower of Jesus, you have to understand that you have to be centered in the gospel. You have to be reminded of the cross often. You can't do, if you want to say, okay, I got it. I want to get the light of life into my life. I want the light of the world. Sign me up. Sounds fantastic. What are the Christian scruples that I should, uh, that I should manifest? I should, uh, yeah, I should give some money and, and be philanthropic and I should go to church and I should pray some and say my prayers, our Father, and I, I should do this and I should do that and then the light of life will be in my life. Nope. Nope. There has to be an understanding and a center on the cross and understanding that Jesus was crucified and that is the center of gravity died, buried, rose again, and everything orbits around that. Without, pull that out and just have Judeo-Christian values and you don't have the light of life. You got morality and you got a code, but you don't have the light of life. You've got to center on that and understand that that alone will, will so profoundly impact you. I'm going for it, okay? I'm, I'm gonna run out of time, but it's fine. You can hang with me. That's going to attack your, your self-inflation and your self-hatred at the same time. Most of us are prone to be in one of these two camps where we inflate ourselves, we're prideful, it's, it's difficult for us to humble ourselves. Sin, what sin? I'll take care of my sin myself. You know, I'll confess, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll be fine. And we tend, to, we tend to have pride that crops up. And the cross will smash that. And will teach you, Jesus had to die for you, for me. That ain't little. That's not little. Your sin was grave enough that he had to die for you. And in so doing, requires humility. You gotta go through the low door of humility to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I stand no chance. Save me, please. I repent. I'm wrong. That requires a lot of humility and will kill your self-inflation. It'll pop your balloon. Some of you are not that way, though. You're, you're self-hatred. You're, I'm so bad. If you only knew what I had done, the skeletons in my closet, my past, how could Jesus love me? It's so terrible. I don't deserve his grace. And you're going to be down on yourself, and you need the cross, too. And you need to see, he loved you. The cross demonstrates that. It proves his love towards you. He swallows hell for you. He, he experiences separation from the Father for you. He does that for you. That means you're valuable. That means you're loved. That means that you're gorgeous. That means that there's something there for you. And both of them, only the cross is going to do that to your heart. 
And, and you can't remove yourself from that. So you've got to follow Jesus. You've got to be centered on the gospel and on the cross. But you also just have to believe. That's what really what it all boils down to. And how the, this text ends in verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. And if you've never believed, I would encourage you today, believe. That's really is the primary intention of today. I'm trying to edify believers today best I can. But I'm also trying to evangelize sinners today. I hope that many will believe today. And pastor, you... you you, you, you're trying to get me to be Christian? Cards on the table. Yes, 100%. Trying to convert you. It's the best thing you'll ever do. To experience the light and the life of Jesus Christ. To say, you know what? He's in control. I'll follow. He died for me. I believe that. He rose from the dead. I believe. I put my faith in him. It's the best thing you could ever do. I'm done with this question. What happens if we don't get the light? So we've talked about light in a positive sense. It's awesome. Jesus is awesome. Let's go negative. Because Jesus went negative. I'm not making it up. He went negative. What happens if we don't get this light? Well, verse 12. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. Okay? Flip it. The opposite's true. Don't follow me. You will walk in darkness. Right? He says, if, if you don't have this, you're going to be dark. Right? No light equals darkness. That's the way that it goes. Now, the problem is nobody thinks they're in darkness. <laughs> right? The irreligious think they're enlightened. Isaiah predicted that they would begin to call light darkness and darkness light. And you see it, that now it's almost like the darkness is light, and it's celebrated that way. That the irreligious and the culture at large has parades for things we should have funerals for, celebrates things that we should repent of, puts on a pedestal things that are absolutely contrary to the light of Jesus Christ, but all the while says we're enlightened. We found the light. But that's not really who Jesus is talking to. Who is Jesus? You talk back at me. Who is Jesus talking to in this text? Irreligious people or religious people? Religious people. Pharisees. People that know the Bible. People are talking about God. They were just dancing under the candlelight, worshiping God, you know, in the, in the treasury. These people going through the motions, who oppose God in the name of God with the word of God. You read through this text, they say, oh, the law says, you had a testimony of one, you need more testimony. Oh, but, but our father, the, the, all they, they, God is there in front of them and they're opposing God in the name of God with the word of God, which is very possible to do. It's very possible for you to be here and to, and to be on the membership role of Harvest Baptist Church, but, but be walking in darkness to not really have the light of Jesus in your life. So you'll walk in darkness. You say, oh, no big deal. I'll walk in darkness. It won't be that bad. Then, you know what? Dust to dust. The end. No, he says more than that. And these words are scary. Verse 24, last verse. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, I don't think Jesus says that with like a scowl on his face, mad at them. Because some of these people believed, we saw in verse 30. Not all of them were there. But he's very clear. I think loving and deep concern for their souls. Later on, he'll weep over Jerusalem. But he says very clearly, I'm the light of life. Come get me. I'm awesome. But he also says, don't have me die in your sins. You will be in darkness. You will die in your sins. Now, that means that for an unbeliever, death is not at all the worst thing. For a believer, death is an upgrade. We get to go be with God. For an unbeliever, 
this earth is as close as you'll ever come to heaven. And Jesus is very clear. What, what does that mean, dying your sins? It means that you die without the light, you die without the life, you don't go to heaven, you go to hell, that there's eternal damnation. He said this all through John's gospel and has not been unclear about it at all. And some people want to dance on the edge of destruction and, and, and be so close to the light, but not really, and still in darkness. And I, I would tell you this, belief. You want it because it's so good, but you also want it because the alternative is so bad. And you don't want to be in darkness, and you don't want to die in your sins. You want to know Him. You want relationship with Him. You want fellowship with Him. So allow Him to lead, follow Him, believe on Him, and say, Jesus, I surrender. Really, the, the, the invitation is this. If you have not believed, I hope that today you will. Religious pedigree or not, don't care. Pray all your life growing up and say grace for your meals or not. I don't care. No religious background or religious background. Doesn't matter. If you know inside of yourself and God's screaming at you right now that you, that you have not believed, that you don't have the light of life, then believe. Most of the time it's not an intellectual thing. If, it's an, if it is an intellectual thing, we are happy to talk and to answer those questions. I get that. Most of the time it's pride, not willing to humble yourself. Well, I told them I was saved. They're going to think I lied to them. If you have not believed, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to call out to God and to say, Jesus Christ, I believe. Would you come into my life? Give me your light. I want you. I choose you. I follow you. And make that decision today.